Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mid-East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. As religious leaders gather in Bali this week for their first Religion Forum 20 summit, under the auspices of the Group of 20, or G20, that brings together the world's largest economies, I'll be discussing with acclaimed political scientist Ahmed Kuru the issues that undergird the gathering. Let me first try to set the scene. The Religion Forum is being held two weeks before the G20's political leaders are scheduled to meet in Indonesia, the group's current chair, for what potentially promises to be an acrimonious gathering attended by the presidents of the United States, Russia, and China. The religious summit is likely to find it easier to agree on common language than their political leaders, but that may be where the easy part ends. Organized by Nahratul Ulama, arguably the world's largest and most moderate independent civil society movement in the world's largest Muslim majority country and democracy, the summit hopes to position religion as part of the solution to global problems rather than part of the problem. That's a tall order in a world in which religion has been politicized and religious nationalism, whether Christian, Hindu, Jewish, or Muslim, is either an important factor in politics in countries ranging from the United States to India and Israel, or being harnessed to legitimize autocratic rule in other parts of the world. Finding common language is relatively easy for religious leaders. However, defining what those words mean is a very different story, particularly given that the participants in the R20 range from genuine believers in religious tolerance, pluralism, and unrestricted adherence to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, such as Nadatul Ulama, to the extreme Hindu nationalist Rashatiya Sayawamasek Sang, or RSS, that is Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's ideological cradle, to this year's summit co-organizer, the Muslim World League, a propagator of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's socially moderate but politically autocratic interpretation of Islam. One measure of the summit's success will be whether it can go being just another lovey-dovey interfaith conference, of which there have been so many in the last more than two decades since the 9-11 Al-Qaeda attacks on New York and Washington. Those conferences never operationalized their lofty statements. They allowed state-aligned, if not controlled, Muslim scholars to justifiably portray Islam as a religion of moderation at a time that it was on the defensive. More problematic is the fact that these conferences also served to ensure that autocrats could be projected as beacons of a form of Islamic moderation that was self-serving and socially tolerant, but not politically, or in some cases, even religiously pluralistic. It's not clear if and how the R20 summit will be able to avoid these pitfalls, not only because of the diversity and the diverging interests by the various participants, but also 
because the devil is always in the details. Separating the wheat from the chaff happens when flesh is put on the skeleton by taking off the shades of ambiguity. To be fair to Nada Tululama, the movement has developed a long-term strategy that is as bold as it is risky. Fundamentally, it hopes that its principles of tolerance, non-discrimination, and pluralism, that it roots in the faith, as well as the need to reform what Nadatul Ulama calls obsolete elements of Islamic jurisprudence, will rub off on the likes of the RSS and the Muslim World League. There is much to be said for a strategy of engagement rather than ostracization that underlies the R20 and Nadatul Ulama's approach. Yet it's also an iffy strategy with a capital I. For the strategy to succeed, religious, nationalist, political, and or state-controlled groups and entities need to want a genuine dialogue in which they are open to change rather than in search of an opportunity to exploit for their own self-serving purposes, what Nadatul Ulama brings to the table. There is little indication so far that these groups and entities see the R20 as anything more than an opportunity for their PR and for co-optation of Nadatul Ulama, potentially their most convincing and effective rival. Ahmed Kuru is the perfect discussion partner for this podcast. He is the author of a widely read and translated book, which suggests that underdevelopment and authoritarianism in the Muslim world is a product of the alliance between religious scholars and autocratic leaders. Ahmed, welcome to the show and to what I will hope will be a conversation and a discussion rather than an interview. Thanks for having me, James. I'm a fan of your podcast, and you are really putting the R20 meeting in an important and depth framework in your introduction. And I'm really look forward to this conversation. The same here. Perhaps we should start with maybe you want to add something to what I've said in the introduction. You may have some very different insights. In fact, I can only expand and add certain points. I have an agreement with you on the first of all importance of R20 and I am coming to meet you and other friends and participants in Bali. And also, I also agree with you the significance of Nahdatul Ulema, not only in terms of its size, but also its recent initiative of humanitarian Islam with an emphasis on reforming certain aspects including the idea of leadership, caliphate, the idea of Islamic State based on Sharia, and the idea of discriminating non-Muslims as kafir. And Nahdad Ulema has taken a really bold step in reforming those issues, at least into political ground, and really providing a really important initiative to make an inclusive Muslim politics where non-Muslims are not discriminated but seen as equal citizens. So at this point I value, and last year I had an article suggesting Middle Eastern scholars and audience to pay attention 
what is going on in Indonesian case and Nahdlemas reform. And you have many writings on this important issue. But today we are here to discuss how the R20, its future, its impact will have something related to either I would call international diplomacy, which means representative of certain countries coming together with good faith, smiling and sharing important views. But it is, as you put, another interfaith dialogue meeting as we have seen since 9-11. Or can we go beyond that as a transnational intellectual dialogue where self-criticism can be also emphasized, where the rights of minorities can be also really emphasized because today I'm very concerned about minority rights in Asia. As we have all seen, the Muslim minorities in India, China, and other parts of Asia have been really discriminated. And can this be also a part of the agenda for an honest debate? These are some of the questions I'm asking. I think those are very important questions and we should come back to that in a moment. One one remark on that, I think part of the, obviously the G20 is a very powerful framework, but presumably it is also a limiting framework because it involves governments who are going to pursue their own interests and are particularly not, not interested in criticism. But before we get into all of that, um, Let's stick with Nadatul Ulama for a moment, because I think there are a number of factors that uh, really make it unique, if you wish. Um, first of all, it's an independent civil so society movement, even if it has a political wing that has ministers in the government of Indonesian President Joko Widodo. Its concept of humanitarian Islam stands for an embrace of genuine tolerance and pluralism, as you noted as well as, and I think that's very important, unconditional endorsement of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We can talk about the other elements of Nadatul Ulama's strategy uh, and how it wants to get from A to B in a moment, but perhaps we should start with the group's advocacy of jurisprudential reform, and again, you referred to that, to free the faith of what Nadatul Ulama terms obsolete element of Sharia or Islamic law. This is one major position that sets the group apart from any other Muslim movement in my mind and poses the most serious religious challenge to autocrats' employment of state-controlled scholars and clerics to use religion to legitimize their regimes. You've written extensively about Nadatul Ulama and probably can elaborate on this much better than I can. And in fact, this is an important point, and you are very humble, James. I think you elaborate very nicely. But in this discussion, I want to emphasize two points. First of all, on the issue of reform in the last 200 years, we had examples of state-led reforms, either as a justification mechanism for their autocracies or some religion in reforms, top-down political. Start with Egypt, Muhammad Ali Pasha, and Ottoman Empire. And I can say that the Ottoman 
legal attempt that's called Mejelle, a new Islamic family law and civil law, in addition to certain declaration by the Istanbul government or ruler or sultanate that there will be an Ottoman citizenship, including both Muslim, non-Muslims together, establishing a parliament in 1877, 60% Muslim, 40% Christian Jews and others. That was an attempt and they abolished the blasphemy law that no punishment for apostasy and blasphemy. But that was government-led. It wasn't reflected in madrasa texts, religious discourses in Turkey or other parts of the empire. At the individual level, if you move from state to individual, of course, we have Muhammad Abduh in Egypt, Fazlur Rahman in Pakistan, then in the United States, Quran-based approach or historicizing approach. But now between these two levels, state and individual, we have an organization, Nahdat Rulema, a large number of followers, an open and unapologetic declaration that they want to have an interpretation of Islam compatible with democracy, equal citizenship, and state-based law. This is important. That's, I see something really filling a gap between certain individual reformists with very little organizational tie or certain state attempts eventually didn't really penetrate religious ground. But now I value this initiative, Humanitarian Islam, and other initiatives in Indonesia, especially Nathalema, about the issue of promoting equal citizenship, about the issue of really rejecting the idea of Sharia-based Islamist, Islamic State aspiration. So that's how I would put Nahdat Ulema into context. You know, actually, you just made me think your comparison with the late uh, period of the Ottoman Empire is a fascinating comparison. And it brings to bear the fact that actually Nadatul Ulama may be the only civil society movement, at least that I'm aware of, not only give, because of its size, but also because it actually has a network of thousands of madrasas throughout Indonesia, where uh, its concept of humanitarian Islam is being taught. And it is far less reliant on the, uh, the authority of Middle Eastern uh, religious institutions, like, for example, Al-Azhar in Cairo or the Islamic University in Medina, because it has its own religious uh, infrastructure, if you wish, of tens of thousands of, uh, of Muslim scholars that are part of the movement. And therefore, it, it's positioned in a way that is almost unique. I agree with you, and since you referred to the Ottoman case again, and you have a very deep experience in Turkey, let me continue with this very significant Middle Eastern case. When I translate my article on Nahdet Ulema into Turkish, I ask my Turkish readers to make a comparison between religious groups in Turkey and religious groups in Indonesia, not only Nahdet Ulema, but also Mohammedia. In Turkey, there is the unfortunate idea that Sufi tariqas, 
and Islamic communities, they have their leaders for life. And these leaders are regarded as assigned by God with certain dreams, inspirations, etc. Therefore, it's very unlikely to see power transition, challenge or term limit or criticizing, criticizing the leader within the organization. Even the so-called moderate democratic organizations are very opaque and hierarchical and only open to criticism from outside. But then I taught them that, look, in Nahdat Ulama Muhammadiyah, there's a list of leaders you can reach in the Wikipedia. Muhammadiyah is another major Islamic civil society movement in Indonesia. Just Yes, thanks, thanks for clarification for the, yes, definitely. So we generally say Nahdat Ulama has around 90 million and then Muhammadiyah generally 30 million followers and both have universities and school systems. As well as I understand, Muhammadiyah is more tend to be rationalist, Muhammad Abduh type, whereas Nahdid Ulema embracing more Sufism and Tasawwuf or spirituality and local tradition elements, more emphasis. But despite that, they both have a mechanism of choosing leaders. And recently, Pak Yahya was elected as the chairman of Nahdid Ulema's, the, the main a ruling leadership uh, structure, which is something really rare to see in Turkey, despite being a NATO member, EU candidates, religious leadership is very mystical. It doesn't have the concept of election for religious organizations. And this really Another important element in the case of Nahdat ulama or Indonesia in broader sense that Middle East cases, at least in the case of Turkey and Sufi understanding, should learn and really analyze. And not only was he elected, he had a campaign. There were other candidates. Yes, so competitive election, yes. It was not just an election, it was a competitive election. Um, I want to digress briefly, but I think before we come back to the R20, but I think that this is important in terms of putting the religious reform into context. And that is that it, the notion of the reform, certainly the way Nadatul Ulama is putting it forward, uh, counters an attitude that goes far beyond Islam. And that historian David Hollinger pointed out in a recent article. Now, he was talking about the United States and evangelicals. But I think it's true in general, and that is religious ideas are the one area that are not subject to scrutiny, at least not in countries with freedom of speech, where everything is subject to scrutiny. Religious ideas are viewed as private concerns, like the details of one's marriage or bank account. By contrast, any criticism of Islam is denounced as blasphemy and Islamophobia. So in a sense, what Nadatul Ulama is advocating in a contemporary context, I would almost describe as revolutionary. I agree. And if we put it in a comparative and global context, as you know, from 1920s to 1970s, the main trend in the Muslim world was very secular in terms of politics and government. Turkey with Atatürk's legacy, even Iran in Shah until the revolution, Ba'ath parties in Syria and Iraq, Jamal Abdul Nasser and the military regimes in 
Egypt, Habiburgi, but Tunisia, all the way in Bangladesh and Indonesia, many example of secular in a broader sense or sometimes narrow sense, uh, governments, state funders, political parties. And in the world, there was strong secular ideologies throughout the Cold War. In the last 50 years, what we see is a religious revival, not only in the Muslim world, but also throughout the world in the United States. Since Bill, uh, Jimmy Carter, we either have an evangelical president or a conservative. Obama is one of the few uh, exceptions. And evangelical Christianity uh, is really reasserting itself. And now the conservatives in the U.S. Supreme Court, some of them emphasizing Christian values. And in, in Europe and Israel, uh, more right-wing parties, a BGP in uh, India, and even in Russia, despite 80s communist legacy now, the Orthodox Christian Patriarch is a partner of Putin and justified the attack to Ukraine. The reason why I'm telling all of this is that R20 is meeting at a time when religious majorities globally reach a level of power. The secular hegemony ended with very few exceptions. Everywhere, majority religious groups reach certain level of domination or influence. But I am really uh, predicting a secularist backlash because religious majorities violate minority rights, minority rights in, in Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, or in India, Russia, and elsewhere. That will eventually create a backlash among the minorities or more secular-minded young people. And before the protests start in Iran, we learn about certain public surveys saying that majority of Iranians tell that they are no longer Muslim. In Turkey, there is also a young generation coming to with a reaction to the Islamist government. So in this regard, the warning to all religious groups is that they either respect minority rights, make themselves go beyond majoritarian democracy, embrace some liberal values, or they will see very strong secularist backlash before the end of the century. So that's something all religious groups should really think about going beyond the euphoria of majoritarian, majoritarian domination they are really enjoying now. It's interesting. I, I've written extensively about this, and I've looked at uh, multiple surveys that have been done in recent years. And there seems to be a pendulum, pendulum swinging. So with other words, there's, uh, there was certainly for a, ver for a number of years a redefinition of religiosity among Muslim youth, uh, particularly in the Middle East, but not only in the Middle East. So uh, Muslim young, younger people no longer wanted the ritual performance and the emphasis on how you publicly appear. They wanted a much more individual uh, experience of religion. Uh, and they were skeptical both of um, temporal and religious authority. And then in a number of countries you saw, um, uh, including Saudi Arabia, but also Iran, uh, 
a growing number of atheists, or in Turkey, deists, uh, who believed in God but not in religion, uh, and a fair number of conversions to, for example, Christianity, uh, which you see among other things in uh, uh, below the surface in Iran. But if you look at the most recent surveys, so in the last two months, for example, uh, in one case, a majority, and a majority being about two-thirds to three-quarters of youth, uh, Arab youth said that their most, the most important element in their identity was religion. And that went beyond family, nation, ethnicity, or tribe. So with other words, you, you saw a, uh, somewhat of a return of a more traditional interpretation of Islam. So I think that, well, I basically agree with you that uh, there's going to be a secular backlash inevitably, which way, and that ultimately youth may swing in that way too, you still seem to have a balancing act going on and it's sort of the pendulum swings from one extreme to another. Uh, thanks for bringing the metaphor of swing and pendulum. I think it's very helpful to understand American politics or the religion politics in many countries. And uh, an important element in this discussion is nationalism. As you know, nationalism emerged as an alternative or even reaction to Catholicism and the Vatican's domination in Europe. And then in the Muslim world, there was a very strong tension between nationalists and Islamists from Turkey to Egypt and elsewhere. But what we are seeing in the last 20 years, interestingly, right-wing populism bring together religion, nationalism, and a demagoguery political leader. This really make religious movements more powerful, but it may also be a facade because right-wing populism bring nationalism as a, a religion and nationalism, both as identities. And at this point, there are many people who belong without believing. So belonging without believing in a sense that some surveys say in Moscow, 60-70% of the people say they are Christian Orthodox, but at the same time, 30-40% say they are atheists. So the numbers don't match because they are atheist Christians. That's their identity, but they don't believe. So uh, in this regard, for those who really pay attention, religion as a source of morality, ethics, love, and compassion, there's some problem emerging with politicization, with the combination of nationalism and religion as a tool of discriminating the other as a means of xenophobia, that's really dangerous. And even if religion stay in public, powerful as a symbolic power, it will lose its moral ground. And for those who are genuinely believe, that should be a concern too. Absolutely. And that brings us back, you know, that brings us back to the Religion 20 Forum, and I think, you know, Nada Ulama, which is the main driver of the forum, and which sees this sort of as the first step in a process. Now, of course, the notion of ensuring that religion is a force for good rather than a driver of conflict is one that can, one can only embrace. 
Also, the notion that this would have to entail a religious reform suggests that those like Nada Tululuma, who propagate genuine reform, want to tackle root causes rather than just score brownie points. I would even say that engaging with those that are part of the problem of the politicization and weaponization of religion, as you referred to it, is a very good thing. The, quest, the question is whether engagement in and of itself is enough, or whether groups like Nahadat Ulama run the risk of being taken advantage of and legitimizing forces that are truly problematic. Am I being overcautious here, or is there, or do you do you, would you uh, would you agree that Nahadat Ulama is embarking on a really risky road that could backfire? Uh, these are all million dollars questions, and you really finger to the core issues, put your finger into the core issues. And these are all trade-offs because if you want to engage with powerful groups, some of them may be right-wing like RSS as affiliated with BJP in India or Rabata or the World's League of Saudi Arabia, the co-sponsor of R20, uh, even presented as a non-governmental, which is very much governmental organization in reality, or having connection with uh, right-wing groups in Europe or in the United States. These are all risky, as you put. And uh, the trade-off is that, on the one hand, talking to groups sitting on the table is an opportunity to discuss and having some level of mutual impact, if possible. But on the other hand, for many people around the world, especially minorities, that's really kind of heartbreaking or make them concerned that, for example, when you have a good friendship and almost justifying some Hindu nationals in India. What about Muslims in India? How they feel, what they will think, because we are talking about about 200 million Muslims having uh, deteriorating conditions. Or uh, what about Uyghurs in China? When and in recently, there was a voting in United Nations, and Muslim majority countries, including Indonesia, vote favorably for the Chinese government on the issue of Uyghur. So, and if a group of like Nahdat Ulema want to keep a good diplomatic relationship with China, then they may sacrifice their moral position and really the position about protecting minority rights, uh, they are sacrificing that. So these are all really important questions to think about. There are trade-offs, no easy answer. But if, as I emphasized at the beginning of the conversation, in order to be a transnational voice of reform and religious innovation and creativity, you have to really focus on at least give some attention to minority rights. Otherwise, you end up with international diplomatic uh, initiative which end up with nice gestures, but not an in-depth self-criticism. 
I couldn't agree with you more, although I would be unfair towards Nada Tuluma if I didn't point out that in 2020, uh, when Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State visited Indonesia, he visited Indonesia as a guest of Nada Tuluma. Of course, he met with the government and so on. And the centerpiece of his visit was a speech at a conference that was organized by Nada Tuluma, which was focused almost exclusively on China and on the brutal crackdown on the Uyghurs. So in that sense, just to be fair to them, they have spoken out of it. I don't think it's going to come up uh, at the Religion Forum 20, even though I think it should. I think on the, the let, but coming back to the RSS, let me just note one thing. To be fair, Ram Madhav, who's a close associate of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and he's the former Secretary General of Modi's political party, and he's a former Executive Committee me member of the Hindu nationalist RSS, seemed to suggest that the Nadatul Ulama strategy is one that could work. He, Madhav is viewed as a moderate among militants, whatever that means. So, and he suggested in a recent newspaper article that the R20 would have a follow-up in the next two G20s under the chairmanship of India, the largest Hindu majority country in the world in 2023, and Brazil, the largest Catholic country in 2024. This process can help the three world religions, uh, Madhav wrote, together with Buddhism and other important religions, evolve a universal value system and also become equal partners with the political, economic, and technological leadership of the world in defining the destiny of mankind in the 21st century. Now, it strikes me that the proof will be in the pudding, but Madhav's statements seem to suggest that engagement could work. Yes, so uh, that's the beauty of uh, democratic politics, the uncertainty, and, and as long as we keep democratic elections and certain secular laws in countries like India, like Turkey, I think Af the pendulum may be able to swing and uh, we may be hopeful. So let me share an anecdote that about two years ago, uh, BBC Indi Hindi approached me for an interview. Then I taught them that I don't speak Hindi, and they say, we are going to translate. I said, then what, what is the reason you are approaching me? They say, Hayip Erdogan turned Hagia Sophia in, from museum, an old church, then mosque, then museum, to mosque again. And about a week after that, Modi is now putting the foundational stone of a new Hindu temple on the Babra Masjid, which, which was destroyed with the idea that there was a very old Hindu temple in the shrine or the place. So I, we see these two are very much linked to each other. Then that's what we want to ask you to talk about. Then I said to them, okay, I'm going to talk with a condition that I'm also, I will also bring United States because uh, of, at the time, uh, Donald Trump was the president. And he wasn't establishing a church, but holding Bible on the street of Washington, D.C. So therefore, right. I want to emphasize that we truly have a global problem. 
and all religious and religious groups have these challenges. And I hope R20 will be a forum where we will be able to discuss in a, in a really a deep intellectual way all of these concerns and questions. I want to come back to something that you said before, and this also relates to what you just said, which is, and, 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 and it relates to the chances of success for Nada Tululuma. And that is that there's, of course, a difference between the RSS and the Muslim World League. I mean, irrespective of what one thinks of the RSS, it is a grassroots civil society movement, whereas the Muslim World League is everything but it's a tool that serves Mohammed bin Salman. To me, that is a crucial distinction. The League has every interest in co-opting Nada Tululuma and neutralizing it as a serious challenge to Saudi Arabia's notion of a moderate Islam that is socially liberal, but politically autocratic. The RSS obviously would want Naratul Ulama's um, endorsement, but it also is, it may also be much somewhat more open to a genuine dialogue rather than a ceremonial exchange. Yeah. So uh, let me emphasize two points. First, for the audience, since you and I have been discussing the cases from India and Saudi Arabia, we should also tell them that as well as I see the program in the draft, there are many uh, speakers and participants coming from Nigeria, a Catholic uh, representative from there, and from United States, uh, the Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormon Church speaker will coming from there. And there are also the, some Muslims, Hindus, Christians all around the world. So it's a global forum. But we, you and I, focusing on some very visible, and one in your question is the co-sponsor. The, the, the word leagues, or we call it Rabata in Turkish and Arabic, and my answer to you would be that uh, until very recently, uh, this organization was the official, it's still the official uh, organization of Wahhabi Islam of Saudi Arabia with very rich financial resources coming from petrodollar or oil money and promoting a Wahhabi Salafi understanding, for me, a very narrow and problematic understanding of Islam with Quranic translations, preachings, and other ways. Even in 1980s, for example, when Turkey had a secular military rule, they used Rabata money to pay the salaries of Diyanet Imams in Europe when it was revealed, it was a big scandal in Turkey. They say, how did you allow Saudi money to shape or teaching Islam through Diyanet in Europe? So, but recently there was a change in Saudi Arabia. And this change may also impact the word leak or Rabata. I don't know to what extent, but as well as I understand and have helped me to elaborate for the audience, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the Crown Prince, initiated certain things, including the abolishment of morality police, permission to women to drive and attend uh, uh, soccer stadium games, and also 
he is publicly talking about these reforms. In a recent interview I watched, he was saying that Hadith, the records about the Prophet's uh, sayings, uh, if there are few narrators, they should not be taking source of law, and there are so many strict Sharia law in Saudi Arabia. And he said, if I keep them, I will not be able to bring tourists and foreign direct investment to my country. So therefore, MBS, in my mind, in the last five, six years, tried to reform certain things. He seems to understand that oil money will be depleted. And following the UAE model, he is trying to open Saudi Arabia to tourism and other foreign currencies. And in order to do that, he wants to abolish certain restrictions and some strict Sharia laws. And therefore, this institution co-sponsoring R20 is coming with some new understanding emphasized by the political leaders. So this is this good or bad? I'm really open to learn and I will pay attention to understand. But let me conclude saying that politically, as you emphasize, this is an authoritarian regime, and we all know how Kashikchi was murdered in Istanbul, and uh, the very restrictive way they even pushed the MBS pushed the Lebanese prime minister to resign on, at gunpoint, and there are there are a list of problems. So as as a person who criticized Kemalist Atatürk's reform in Turkey for being reformist, but at the same time authoritarian. Of course, there's no way I would really like and appreciate an authoritarian reform. But I want to emphasize that there is something changing in Saudi Arabia. And I'm I'm ready to learn more about that. There's there's no question that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has made some very significant changes whether that's uh, uh, lifting the ban on women's uh, uh, driving, whether that's enhancing both uh, uh, a degree, to some degree, personal freedoms of women, um, professional opportunities, entertainment opportunities. It's also very clear that he has not abolished the, uh, the religious police but he's put them on a very tight leash and they no longer are what they were in the past. Uh, now, in my mind, all of that amounts to social reform. And it was social reform. Let's keep in mind, Mohammed bin Salman is a man in his thirties. He's not an octogenarian. He understands intuitively what youth aspirations are. Uh, and he responds to those. But all of the reforms that he has done are social reforms. None of those reforms involve religious reform. Uh, so, so with other words, uh, what he has done, he's forced down the throat of a, of a very ultra-conservative uh, religious establishment or at least ultra-conservative in the past. Uh, but he hasn't changed anything. Keep in mind that to, until today, despite the fact that Mohammed uh, bin Salman 
uh, emphasizes interfaith dialogue, you still cannot build a non-Muslim house of worship. Uh, and I think that's a real marker. Uh, when it comes to the Muslim World League, the Muslim World League was one of the, but a, a major tool in decades of propagating an ultra-conservative interpretation of Islam worldwide. It no longer does. Uh, it now propagates uh, Mohammed bin Salman and its own Secretary General, Mohammed al-Isa. And the funds that it has, and it is well-funded, those funds are going into humanitarian aid primarily, much more than into religious funding. And to be fair to uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he has significantly cut back on religious funding uh, internationally. And in fact, for example, in the case of the um, Grand Mosque in Brussels that was really problematic, becoming problematic uh, for the Saudis, he handed it back to the Belgians, let them deal with it. So, I, you know, yes, there's been, in my mind, real reform, but it's all been not religious. I agree. And if we look at one of my main points, the minority rights, what about Shia minority in Saudi Arabia? MBS is very harsh. And there are, as you know, and right sometimes there are executions in Saudi Arabia and some of the executions targeting Shia scholars in Saudi Arabia or sentences. What you've seen is a, a very brutal crackdown on Shiite protests several years ago. And indeed, uh, a, um, uh, the execution of a very prominent uh, Shiite scholar and leader. But at the same time, what you've also seen is a fair amount of significant investment in Shiite parts of the country, particularly in the East, that were not getting that investment in the past. Now, it's happening very much in the same way that uh, uh, gentrification is taking place in Jeddah, or that this new futuristic $500 billion city Neom on the Red Sea is being built, whereby uh, inner cities are getting um, destroyed and rebuilt and populations are getting uh, displaced. Or in the case of um, Neom, their lands are being confiscated. So it, it, again, it's, it's a mixed bag but it's, it's a mixed bag very much, in my mind, in, a, in an autocratic, top-down setting. And again, as you said, there are at least a major impulse motivation coming from well-educated young people. And we don't know about them because Saudi Arabia is not an open society, but there are signs that uh, European or American educated young elite in Saudi Arabia may support reforms and want more. And if you go beyond, if you move from agency to structure, the financial structure will transform soon. In many Muslim majority countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, authoritarianism and what I call ulema state alliance, they have been funded, fueled by oil money. 
And same, I, we could say, for Putin's Russia. But in the 30, 40 years, maybe sooner, with the development of new technology resources, energy resources, and depletion of oil money, as it's happening in Bahrain, to some extent, even in Indonesia, we'll see that the financial pillars of authoritarian regimes will be weakened. I mean, the key, certainly for Saudi Arabia, is going to be job creation. And the problem that you are seeing in Saudi Arabia is that there are segments of the youth that are benefiting already. But there are also segments of the youth, particularly in the second tier cities and rural areas that have yet to see a yield. So for Mohammed bin Salman, it's all going to ride on whether or not his reforms will succeed. But I want to come back to the R20 as we round up this conversation. It strikes me that there is an interesting balance going on between Nahdlatul Ulama and Saudi Arabia. And that is, of course, that if Nahdlatul Ulama gets the imprimatur of the Saudis simply by playing lip service to what Nahdlatul Ulama propagates, even if they are not serious about it, then in effect, they are getting the imprimatur of the custodian of the two holy cities, Mecca and Medina. And that, of course, has enormous religious and spiritual value and gives Nada Tululama heft. The problem with that is that the trade-off is that Nada Tululama gives legitimacy to the kingdom's autocratic form of Islamic moderation that is social but not political. And so the question is, in the trade-off, who benefits the most, Nadatul Ulama or the Muslim World League? Yes, and uh, when we look at the history as a laboratory, the major case about having mutual impact with Saudi Arabia is Egypt. And I don't mean that the ulema muslim world relations will ever be as deep as Egyptian and Saudi Arabian relationship. But your question just inspired me. And I want to briefly say that many Muslim brothers, after secularist military oppression, or various reasons, moved to the Gulf. And Karadawi, who recently passed away, was one of them. And they went there with certain Islamist political views plus classical Sunni understanding different from Salafi Wahhabism. And Saudis embraced them because uh, Qataris, Kuwaitis and others, because there wasn't very well established institutions similar to LSR in 1960s, 70s, 80s in Gulf. At the end today, we see that both had a strong impact on each other in a way that Salafism, as you know, in the first and only the election, competitive, truly competitive election after the Arab Spring, Salafi parties received 25% of votes in Egypt. In Egypt. That was uh, shocking for many observers. And the Salafi impact is visible on many Muslim brothers and their interpretation of Islam. So, as I said, Nahdlatul Ulama's partnership may be short-term, 
one-time thing, etc. But in a broad sense, I would say that Salafi Islam is a very strong message coming with the idea that piety, maximum piety is always better. And with symbolic gestures, it makes sense for the mass people. Even for the elite, the, the utopian rationalism of them appeal certain people. So in this regard, I would suggest that, yes, Nahdada Ulama is a strong organization, millions of supporters, and a very good, important pro-democratic agenda of humanitarian Islam. But even if the social reform way of Salafism and Wahhabism still religiously very much against the idea of pro-democratic reform and moderation. And it may appeal certain people. So it's a very strong competitive. Therefore, it should be taken seriously. So Absolutely. We, uh, yeah. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out at the Religion Forum 20. Um, my sense is we may not see a lot of that playing out publicly just because it's it's in the context of the G20. But the, the, the dynamics that undergird it that we were talking about throughout this, uh, this conversation, I think are going to be playing out for quite a while and be playing out in, uh, in G20s as we move forward over the next two to three years. Yes, and I'm very happy to have this conversation with you, James, because I elaborate my thinkings maybe in the forum G20, R20 itself. I will not be have the chance to say all of them because I should also be more diplomatic there. <laughs> There's a reason why you're speaking and I'm not. <laughs> and, Ahmed, thank you very much for taking the time. It really was a pleasure. Thank you, James. It's always a pleasure having an intellectual engagement with you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. All the best. Thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening to us. And I hope that this was useful and insightful. All the best to everybody. Good night. <laughs>